Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I'm the Senior Director of Communications and Engagement at Fresh Energy, and today I'm here with you to share a recording of our webinar, Debriefing COP27. And with that, let's jump in. Welcome to our webinar today. Uh, we're so excited to have you here to talk about COP27. Um, while more folks are filtering into the room, I would encourage you all to use the chat. The webinar chat should be open. Please put your, your name, your pronouns, and where you're joining us from in the chat box. Um, my name is Joe Olson. I'm the Senior Director of Communications and Engagement at Fresh Energy, and I am excited to see so many people joining us today. It's clear there's an appetite to learn and talk about COP27. So for today's discussion, we are going to hear from Jay Drake Hamilton, Senior Director of Science Policy at Fresh Energy, Dr. Famara K. Dampha, Research Scientist in Natural Capital and Ecosystem Services and Director at the U of M's Institute on the Environment, and Patrick Hamilton, Director of Global Change at the Science Museum of Minnesota. And I mean, seeing the chat box already fill up. So this is great to see so many people from all over Minnesota joining us. So if you're joining late, put your, your name, where you're joining us from, and your pronouns in that chat box. So before we dive into the good stuff, I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping. Even though the Q&A is at the end of the webinar, you are encouraged to submit your questions at any time. I know the chat box is going to be very enticing, but please use the Q&A function to submit your questions. So if you hover over the bottom of your screen, a little box will pop up that says Q&A. Um, that's the easiest and fastest way to submit your questions. And then you can see the other questions that your other folks on the webinar submitted. You can upvote the ones you like. I'll be prioritizing that Q&A box when we get to the Q&A at the end of the webinar. So please use that instead of the chat. Um, and final reminder, this webinar is being recorded. We will email you a link to the recording later this afternoon or early tomorrow. And in fact, everyone who registered for the webinar will get that link. And with that, I think we're ready for the main event. So welcome to our experts. Welcome, Jay, Dr. Dampha, and Patrick. Um, so Jay, we're going to start with you. Uh, few people have ever been to the part of the world that you were in for COP27, um, this area of Egypt. Will you pull back the curtain a bit on what Sharm el-Sheikh is like? I will be happy to do so, Joe. COP27 may have been the largest single annual gathering in the world outside of sporting events, and it is very much an enormous international process. Over the course of two weeks, at least 35,000 people from 195 countries attended. But Sharm, as it's called, is a small resort town on the Red Sea with about 35,000 inhabitants, but get this, more than 50,000 hotel rooms. It is surrounded by desert, and Sharm itself sees only 0.3 inches of average annual precipitation. It uses reverse osmosis to desalinize seawater that turned a small desert seashore community over about 40 years into an international resort destination. Such a very dry place needs a lot of water for drinking, washing, golf courses, pools, and landscaping. The city we found to be very difficult to get around it was very expensive, had, had only food mostly at the resorts with no easily publicly accessible restaurants. It is a lot of work going to a cop. It's stressful. We arrived in Cairo, but our two big pieces of luggage with clothes and equipment for four weeks had never left Chicago's O'Hare airport. So we had only essential medicines, toothbrushes, in one set of clothes. Even with the travel insurance we had, it took us two days to get our belongings back in our hands. Woo, <laughs> that was a relief. 
Okay, so Jay, what did you and the other speakers um, have to say on the global stage? Because what is COP, if not a two-week global stage? We came together to discuss the Midwest's role in global decarbonization and on the paramount role of the new Inflation Reduction Act law, also known by its acronym, and a lot of people call it IRA to make it sound more friendly, IRA. We had one hour, took questions, and recorded the presentation. It is available now through the Science Museum of Minnesota's YouTube website. Fresh Energy will send the link to everyone registered for today's webinar. So you'll get that too. Yep, I'll make sure that's in the email. And just so folks know what they're seeing on the screen, this is the, uh, well, how you promoted the presentation at COP. So just a little snapshot of what that looks like. So I'm gonna stop sharing my screen now for the moment anyway, and um, move on to my next question. So uh, Jay, most parties, like had had didn't really know what to expect going into COP27, but what amazed you most about this COP, knowing it wasn't your first? You've been to quite a few. Yeah, parties are the countries who are signers of the climate change treaty. Most parties I talked to had low expectations going into this COP with its simultaneous global combined energy, food, and debt crises underway. The G20 was also meeting in Asia at the same time. I think no other COP has had lower expectations. And to our dismay, the president of this COP27 was the Egyptian president, and he did not drive ambition. I'll talk more about that later. But we nonetheless had very high impact decisions made. I've now participated in seven COPs. The first new idea to me presented at my first COP 2005 in Montreal, was called and it still is called climate loss and damage. Back in 2005, people from the world's most vulnerable nations had been urging the UN to address the issue of loss and damage. Wealthy people, they said, wealthy countries must take responsibility for the people injured and property damaged by climate change. Loss and damage is irreversible climate-related devastation that cannot be mitigated or adapted to. These people are hit first and worst by climate change and are least equipped to respond. But can you believe it? Loss and damage was added for the first time to the COP27 UN agenda on the very first day, November 6th of COP27. No one thought that day on November 6th that any real action would be taken, but yes, it did. We expected some amount of limited but insufficient action on emissions and some conspicuous and maddening lack of action on climate change, climate justice, climate finance, and loss and damage. Instead, we got basically the opposite of our expectations. Isn't that amazing? The parties reached consensus on establishing a loss and damage fund about after vulnerable people had urged it for 30 years. They had the first ever historic finance discussion. Several parties, that is several countries, played crucial roles. The European Union, Canada, and New Zealand moved forward strongly to establish loss and damage funding, and they isolated the United States. And eventually the US came to agreement with other parties. The truth is at this African COP, 17 of the most, 17 of the 20 most climate vulnerable countries are in Africa. And yet they contribute, get this, only 0.55% of emissions. Yet this is still the first year and many critical questions have yet to be answered. Where will the funds come from? Where does loss and damage funding stand in the bigger architecture of global funding? Who is the funding base, for example? And does it include China? What nations will get the funding? Who contributes? Who gets loss and damage money? But this still 
as for now, is a vague agreement. It represents a remarkable step following decades of desperate advocacy by the world's climate vulnerable counties and decades of intransigence by the world's historic polluters. Also, what something that happened, which was amazing, India proposed the phase down, not just of coal, but the phase down of all fossil fuels. 80 other countries in charm supported India's position. And interestingly, India holds the chairmanship next year in 2023 of the G20. This may give them a toehold to really make this move forward. Unfortunately, a number of parties were against phase down of fossil fuels, including many petrostates and others, Egypt, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, Iran, and China. And fossil fuels was not mentioned in the final COP27 text. In fact, the words fossil fuels have not been mentioned in the text since COP21 in Paris. Egypt, in fact, worked overtime to keep the phase out of fossil fuels out of the COP27 agreement. Maybe in Dubai next year, perhaps the United Arab Emirates, which are hosting COP28, can be convinced to be oppositional to Egypt. But we know already that the COP28 agenda will be extraordinarily packed. Finance for a just energy transition is mentioned in the text, but we don't yet know what it means and how it will happen. It came into the text late in the game, the day before it ended. We don't know who put it in the text. We don't know what it was intended to do. Deciphering that action will be a long running progress, but I will keep you informed. Thank you, Jay. And now throughout this two week event, I know you met an awful lot of people, probably some familiar faces, but some new folks too. Um, who were some of the most interesting people that you met along the way? Great, and thank you, Joe, is gonna show some of their pictures. I'm gonna start with Ali Zaidi. He's now the National Climate Advisor for President Biden. He succeeded the wonderful Gina McCarthy, who I knew personally in that role. Zaidi was born in Pakistan, and as a youth, he was polled by his family around the dinner table about whether he and his siblings would choose to move to the United States and he enthusiastically replied, yes. Since then, he came to America, he graduated from Harvard and earned his law degree at Georgetown Law School. He looks pretty young in this picture because I think he was 33 or 34 years old. Both Patrick and I were with less than 40 people with Ali Zaidi at the closed door session at the America is All In Pavilion. Zaidi stated, we are working to make a zero carbon economy irreversible. He was meeting with representatives from America's All In to take our questions. I got the last question. I asked him, many Minnesotans and indeed many Americans are very concerned about how the administration and IRA is going to deliver 40% of the overall benefits of climate and clean energy investments to disadvantaged communities. Representing Fresh Energy, I asked Zaidi to be very transparent and report frequently to the public on the benefits from IRA deployment to these disadvantaged communities. Now I think you're seeing a slide of President Biden with President Xi from China. I was selected to be in the room with 5,000 other people to hear President Biden's live speech to COP27 on the evening of November 11th. I was proud to hear our president touting the U.S.'s historic passage into law of the Inflation Reduction Act. I was too, too proud of Biden's next move to join the G20 summit in Bali, India, Indonesia. On November 14th, he met in Indonesia with China's President Xi. The leaders of the two greatest the largest greenhouse gas emitters agreed then to revive their bilateral climate talks immediately. 
And at the G27, they produced an urgent open communication back to COP27. They also announced that the US and Japan had brokered an agreement to provide $20 billion over the next three to five years to accelerate Indonesia's coal phase down, accelerate it by seven years. So you have to see that not everything crucial for climate happened at COP27. And the next slide is an image of one of my favorite people who I've, I've had the chance to meet with personally three years at COPS. As Fresh Energy's delegation lead, I was thrilled to have the occasion to spend about 45 minutes this year with John Kerry in an alcove. We talked about both Minnesota's climate actions and the leading negotiator's work, his work. He told me that his top goal was to revive climate talks with China, which he created through President Biden going to G20, and to focus keenly on methane commitments. He said to me, commitments must be honored. Thank you, Jay. And I'm going to stop sharing my screen right now. And I wonder if you'd be willing to tilt your, your monitor back a little bit so we can get Oh, there you go. I know you're juggling multiple screens. Perfect. That's great. Yep. All good. Um, so let's talk about what important questions actually did not see much discussion at COP27. Jay? Well, there was not much progress in increasing mitigation goals. Not much discussion at all on how high-income countries will deliver their promised $100 billion a year by 2025 to low and middle income countries. They're late with that. China worked assiduously behind the scenes too. They were working to slow work on mitigation. As a result, COPS will go for four more years before reviewing the text on mitigation and that is way too slow. There were no huge emissions cuts announced. Mitigation discussion was overshadowed by the very important loss and damage discussions. Also, we need to ramp up financing on adaptation. There has been not much work done in doubling ad adaptation funding by 2025 to $40 billion, and that was a real loss. Not much was mentioned in CHARM about energy efficiency or small-scale renewable energy. They were not mentioned in the text. There were also a lot of fossil fuel lobbyists at COP27. The 1.5 degrees C goal has gone from being on life support when we were in Glasgow last year to now being in a hospice. How to keep 1.5 alive? 1.5 is increasingly out of our reach. Making progress on 1.5 this year in Charm would have lost us the loss and damage funds. So there were victories, but there were losses too. Keep an eye on sectors where big action can happen soon, like steel and in forests. Keep your eyes on Brazil with newly elected Lulu in charge. Will Brazil stop additional deforestation? Forest, life, forest loss is slowing, but not enough to meet climate goals. To limit global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees, a threshold beyond with which Earth's climate will become profoundly disrupted, deforestation may end. Most nations are not on track to protect Earth's forests. In agriculture, there was historic agreement to focus on adaptation and resilience, and including having the Secretary of Agriculture from the US there. But there was no agreement from agriculture on mitigation. We need to get the agriculture and food sectors to get in the game to be a successful force in reducing emissions. Finally, a few words about Egypt's not well done presidency. The COP27 process was not transparent. The Egypt presidency showed the priorities, the countries draft text for 15 minutes to allow people to look briefly at the text, but the people were not allowed to even read it and prohibited from even photographing it. That is no way to run a transparent and open process. 
we hope and expect the next host of COP, United Arab Emirates, to make COP28 much, much more transparent and open. And now I have the pleasure of introducing our next speaker. He is Dr. Famara K. Damfa. He's a research scientist, a natural capital and ecosystem services guy. Um, he is the program director of something called, in shorthand, NatCap at the Institute on Environment of the University of Minnesota. So I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions. Um, Dr. Damfa, to set the stage first, what is natural capital and why is it important? Okay. Um, first of all, thank you very much um, for the opportunity to participate in um, Press Energy's two sessions now, one at COP27 in Egypt and now here to debrief on the outcomes of the negotiations. So I think in the first introduction, that was a slip of the tongue about being the director of the INE, which is the Institute on the Environment. I think, Joe, if you don't mind, I just want to clarify that. Um, I am not the director of the Institute on the Environment, rather I'm research scientist in natural capital and ecosystem services. And as, as Joe said, uh, the program director of the natural capital project, which is NatCap in short. Um, I think I also would disclaim that I might cough a little bit since I returned from COP27. I've been sick, so apologies for my voice and if I interrupt my discussion by coughing. It's a very important question to start off by defining what do we mean when we say natural capital. And there is a little bit of misunderstanding or misconception about the term sometimes. Often when people say natural capital, they think of forest. But it, it's a very broad concept that natural capital is essentially the gift of nature. It is the planet's stock of water, key, key, key capital assets I'm talking about here, water, land, air, renewable natural resources, and non-renewable natural resources, as well as biodiversity which is plants and animals. So the biological diversity of nature. Now, if you think about those sets of assets, you come to the realization that everything we talk about at COP27 is related to natural capital. It's about the just transition from non-renewable to renewable sources of energy. It's about how we manage land, water, and air, how we deal manage and conserve the biological diversity of this planet. So essentially natural capital is embedded in the climate discourse. The reason why economists use the word capital mm. is literally an extension of the economic notion of what we mean when we say capital. Remember we talk about produce capital, that's the everything that we generate in the economy, whether it's the machinery, the infrastructure, the built environment, the schools and the hospitals. We also talk about uh, human capital, that's the skills and the expertise of the people, but also importantly is social capital, the relationships and the role of institutions, policies, and ensure, ensuring that there is peace and stability in how we live and how we manage these resources. Now, the reason why the Natural Capital Project essentially have a focus on natural capital is a focus on the value the economic invisibility of nature that has been existing for centuries now. Yeah. That when we do our accounting, whether it's our economic accounting through systems like in our system of national accounts with GDP, we omit things that are provided by nature. And we at the Natural Capital Project are saying, no, that's wrong because it is giving you a wrong impression of wealth on, or the progress of a nation. So to account for the comprehensive wealth of a nation, you have to consider all these different forms of capital. And again, at the Natural Capital Project, we've started to think about ways to quantify the unaccounted value of nature in terms of how it helps in improving human wealth and human well-being. Because what doesn't get measured is usually not well managed. So we try to measure this now through a system called gross ecosystem product. And this is 
well implemented, uh, at least as a pilot project in China, where we're looking at how to summarize the value of nature in economic development. So these stocks of assets provide services. We call them ecosystem services. Now the new term that's coming out is nature's contribution to improving human well-being. And there are different categories. It's important to highlight that. Mm -hmm. That when we say provisioning services, sometimes now we're calling the material services. Everything that you get from nature in terms of the food, the timber, the medicine, also non-material services, essentially the cultural, recreational, the experiential, intrinsic, and existential value of nature. These are really important. And, and sometimes we misunderstand that at the natural capital project, when we say let's quantify the value of nature, it's not always in monetary terms because the intrinsic value and the cultural value of nature is difficult to translate in monetary terms. So that's important to note. But when we can try to measure it, when we can try to measure it in other terms, biophysical terms, uh, in terms of using uh, metrics and indices, indices um, I think this is important. The other element that's important uh, from our point of view is the regulating services of nature. Nature helps a great deal in climate regulation. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. It helps a lot with um, water quality and water, water quality and air quality improvement. So those are some regulatory services that nature offers and nature doesn't ask for any uh, invoice or any payment um, and we take those things for granted. So essentially my point is that every economic activity is embedded on our use of natural resources. And this is essential in the climate discourse. That's why everything at COP27, like I said, whether it's from non-renewable to renewable, it's all related to natural capital. And the better we properly manage natural resources, the better we can save this planet. Thank you, Dr. Damfa. I have only one more question. You've been very clear about what this language means. Could you please describe one of your insights from COP27? as it relates to natural capital contributions toward keeping 1.5 alive and building climate resilience development? This is a great question. Thank you very much. I think COP27 was essentially about ambition and justice. And as you alluded to, we lost track of increasing the ambition that is needed to mitigate climate change and to help vulnerable countries to adapt to climate change. Now, I want to clarify that from my point of view, it is wrong for us to think that climate justice is essentially an issue to be pushed by developing countries. To be just and to be morally responsible for what and who has contributed to the emissions of greenhouse gases. We have to see justice as a global, climate justice as a global issue. Ideally, I would like developed nations to really think about justice as something they can push, not justice that has to be demanded for them to deliver. So ambition, equally important, doesn't have to be a developed nation issue. Ambition has to be globally driven because notice that now the increase in emissions of greenhouse gases are essentially growing from low and middle income countries, their emissions are growing, whereas in developed nations emissions, although cumulative emissions are much more compared to developing nations, but developed nations have in many places have peaked their emissions. But the rate of reduction in, 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 in the reduction of those greenhouse gases is what needs to accelerate in developed nations. So the point here is that we have to see ambition and justice um, as a global issue and not bounded by geographical um, boundaries versus developed versus developing countries. My disappointment is that we, developed versus developing countries and now emerging economies, we fail to drastically cut down emissions of greenhouse gases since the publication of the first IPCC report in 1990. We were told that these emissions will increase um, global warming and we fail to cut those rates down. Again, we failed on our ambition on climate adaptation. Adaptation is essential and crucial. The fact that adaptation has failed because of lack of financing and also because of lack of local action. Remember, I, I, I want to be clear here. 
Adaptation cannot just be driven by finance and the flow of money into developing countries. Adaptation has to be bottom-up approach. We have to be very intentional and serious about how we deal with um, the, the, the management of our own local resources at the at the at the at the at the, at the, at the grassroots level. Of course, finance supported, but adaptation needs to be built upon by building the capacity of people on the ground. And my disappointment again at COP27 is the fact that we talk about money, but we're talking less about capacity. It's not always about money. Send money to people when uh, their, their capacity is not built, the understanding uh, sometimes uh, uh, creates a vacuum and that vacuum can lead to maladaptation because you're putting money into areas that they are not needed. Unfortunately now, because adaptation has essentially almost failed, we're now talking about lost and damaged. Those are the limits to adaptation. The fact that we cannot adapt properly because of the extremes of climate related disasters, we have to ask for lost and damages. And it is essential to, to, to point out that we must pay lost and damage to communities that deserve it. Communities that are overburdened by climate change impacts, whether it's extreme droughts and floods and landslides and wildfires, communities that have the least adaptive and resilient capacity to prevent and mitigate these losses. Those losses are losses to their food systems, to infrastructure, to lives and ecosystem functioning in those communities. But I have to come a little bit on to the question of What's the role of nature? As I said, the first point that nature has to play in keeping 1.5 alive is that stop. We have to stop the use of known renewable sources of energy, fossil fuel. We must phase out coal and gas uh, um, and, 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 and oil. That has to be the starting point. And the second point is to recognize the importance of natural ecosystems in serving as reservoirs for carbon storage. That's important. All tropical forests combined today uh, uh, store about 25% of the world's carbon. So, and we know that land-based emissions coming from agriculture, forestry, and other land uses also account for about 25%. We know ozone store about a quarter of the, the world's carbon. So it is important that we know how to manage these natural resources and how to ensure that there is investment that goes into managing those resources. And I have to be also expressed, I've said this during the webinar last, last, last week at Egypt or in Egypt that developed nations, including the United States, including Minnesota, ought to do more to face our fossil fuel. Indeed, Minnesota is doing great in terms of transitioning its electricity generation to renewable sources of energy. It's doing great there. But Minnesota has failed actually to meet its own targets set by the, the, the Minnesota um, known bipartisan um, energy act. Minnesota failed to meet a 2015 target and it is according to the Minnesota Pollution Agency, Minnesota will also fail its 2025 targets and getting to 80% reduction by 2050 is very unlikely if we continue on the current trend. Perhaps the Inflation Reduction Act could change the trajectory here. But the point is that we have to decarbonize the economy and we have to use nature-based solutions to decarbonize the economy because nature-based solutions are contributing to or will contribute to about 37% uh, of the cost-effective mitigation solution that is needed to keep 1.5 alive. That's indeed essential. And developing nations recognize that they have the resources, they have the, the natural assets they have degraded lands that could be restored with nature-based solutions to actually store carbon and to prevent climate-related disasters. Nature provides other essential services. It's not just the carbon storage and sequestration, but it's also the flood mitigation, is the landslide risk reduction. It is also the prevention of erosion. So those nature-based solutions are ready to go today. They are scalable, they are affordable, and we don't need a technological solution to invest in nature-based solutions. I think President Biden highlighted this when he, he made his remarks at COP27 that no technology today is needed for us to use nature-based solutions to serve as carbon sinks. Developing nations announced at COP27, about 25 nations said they will end deforestation by 2030 to, and to hold each other accountable. But they cry, outcry loudly 
and lamented about the inadequate financing that is coming into the Rate Plus program, which is reducing uh, emissions from land degradation and uh, deforestation. We have to ask, and I'm going to end by asking the United States and Minnesota, that what are we doing to invest in nature-based solutions in other countries? You see, climate, when we talk about climate, we have to go beyond boundaries. We have to cross boundaries. That's why it says the, the global nature of climate change calls for the widest possible cooperation and participation by all countries. Can we always try to think beyond boundaries to say, okay, Biden announced that the United States is committing $20 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act, Act to invest in nature-based solution, but specifically in the United States, conserving 30% of US land and water areas by 2030. But my question to Biden and perhaps to Minnesotans, what are we doing? What is the state of Minnesota doing to invest in nature-based solutions in other countries? What is the University of Minnesota doing? What are institutions in Minnesota doing to build capacity in other countries? And how much can we invest into that area? I think will determine how successful we will become in mitigating climate change and in minimizing the loss and damage that is needed to be paid. Thank you for your remarks, Dr. Dempa. You really laid out for us what much more we need to do, including in Minnesota. Now I would like to introduce our third speaker and he should appear on your screen. Patrick Hamilton is the Director of Climate Change, Energy and Environment at the Science Museum of Minnesota. At the Science Museum, Pat champions the museum's goal to achieve 100% carbon neutrality by 2030. So Pat, are you ready for a couple of questions? Fire away, Jay. Okay, Patrick, this is the sixth COP that you have attended. Why do you, on behalf of the Science Museum of Minnesota, continue to attend COP meetings? Yes, it's been uh, quite a learning curve. My first COP was uh, COP21 in Paris in 2015. And much of my time there was just trying to comprehend the enormity of this giant global climate change con conversation taking place amongst thousands of participants from every country. It was a great COP for the first one because it was the one that passed the Paris Agreement by unanimous consent, which stipulates that nations are required to announce nationally determined contributions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. My second COP was uh, two years later, COP23 in Bonn, Germany in 2017. And by then the uh, political landscape had changed precipitously because then President Trump earlier in the summer had announced his intention to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. In response, we are still in, which is a large coalition of corporations, businesses, state and local governments, indigenous nations, colleges and universities, and more. They organize a very large pavilion right next to COP23, in which coalition members highlighted the importance of subnational action in the US on climate change in the absence of federal leadership. Is that COP23 that I had an opportunity to actually talk with uh, staff members of We Are Still In and um, speak to the fact that cultural institutions should be included as a new category of membership in the coalition. And consequently, the, United, the uh, Science Museum was one of the first cultural institutions to join We Are Still In in spring of 2018. My third and fourth uh, COPs respectively were in Katowice, Poland and Madrid, Spain in 2018 and 2019. And as a new member of the We Are Still In leadership team, I used every opportunity at those COPs to make the case that the enormous popularity of cultural institutions could and should be used to catalyze an all society approach to climate change. Now with President Biden in the White House, my fifth and sixth COPs in Glasgow, Scotland last year and Sharm el-Sheikh most recently in Egypt uh, had dual purposes. I continue to advocate and continue to use COP as a platform to talk about cultural institutions playing a stronger role in climate change. But now I also use COP meetings to learn more deeply about how the federal government is greatly ramping up climate action so that I and other members of what is now an 1800 member strong America is all in coalition we look for opportunities to leverage and further accelerate this remarkable progress. 
Patrick, what are your big takeaways from COP27 and Sharm el-Sheikh? Well, you know, first of all, it's really important to appreciate that it is impossible to follow everything going on at a COP, especially now because of the consensus, the realization that climate change impacts absolutely everything everywhere. And so everything everywhere needs to be reconsidered and reimagined. But for me, there were two key takeaways from, from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. First of all, I had an opportunity to hear um, Dr. Uh, Gabrielle Dreyfus. She's the chief uh, scientist with the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. And she was one of the speakers at a session at the US Center. And she said something uh, that strongly resonated with me. She said, we're in a sprint to reduce methane gas emissions now so that we can run the marathon of reducing carbon emissions. And what she meant by this is that methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, but relatively short-lived in the atmosphere compared to carbon dioxide. By dramatically reducing methane emissions right now, we will be able to limit climate change in the short term so that climate change disruptions do not impede our ability to achieve the enormous reductions in carbon dioxide needed by mid-century to stave off the worst impacts of climate change. Now, the good news is that by the conclusion of COP27, over 130 nations had signed the methane pledge, committing themselves to reducing methane emissions by 30% by 2030. And the further good news is that we do not have to rely on the self-reporting of nations on their methane pledges. A new set of satellites in space will become operational in 2023 that will provide all of us everywhere the ability to monitor nearly in real time methane emissions at high resolution virtually anywhere on the planet. Methane is a colorless, odorless, tasteless gas, but a potent, a very potent greenhouse gas, but it'll soon become highly visible to all of us everywhere. My second takeaway is the profound significance of the Inflation Reduction Act, which you previously mentioned which Congress passed and President Biden signed into law back in August. Having rejoined the Paris Agreement shortly after being sworn into office in January of 2021, the COP26 Glasgow in November of that year was really the Biden administration recommitting the United States to international climate negotiations and laying out an ambitious plan for climate action. Now, uh, the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act into law which by the way is the by far the biggest climate legislation in the history of the United States and a very significant uh, movement around the world. The Biden administration at COP27 was all about delivering on the promises made at COP26. It's beginning to sink in amongst nations around the world what a game-changing law the Inflation Reduction Act is. Unlike European uh, nation climate regulations which have a lot of uh, sticks to them, the Inflation Reduction Act is all about carrots, offering a wide array of incentives to motivate and accelerate climate action. And it is already working. I was at a session at the US Center about carbon capture and sequestration and a leader of a Norwegian company that has developed a very innovative technology. Uh, she talked about how the fact that they had dismissed the US market for years and was really focusing on selling into the European market. But with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, they were rapidly pivoting to reorient their business to the United States. Uh, Senator uh, Chuck Schumer, senior senator of, uh, of New York State, was one of the, I mean, he was a key leader in actually getting the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And I had an opportunity to hear from two of his uh, senior staffers, uh, Timothy Ryder and Adrian Devaney. They were intimately involved in crafting this legislation, which they've been working on for the past three years. And they were very matter of fact. They said that now this is law, what is most important is uptake. Uptake is essential. And Governor Jay Inslee of uh, Washington State at another session at the America is All In Pavilion that same day, basically reiterated that same message by saying, we are in a magical moment meaning that the Inflation Reduction Act being the law of the land for the next 10 years, we now have the resources to match the scale of the climate change problem. So I say 
to all of you listening today, come January 1, 2023, when the Inflation Reduction Act finally takes effect, be alert, be ambitious in spreading the awareness of its provisions and taking advantage of them for yourself. With the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, never has it been more necessary to act on climate change and never has it been more possible for you to do so. So thank you in advance. Thank you so much, Patrick. Um, thank you, Jay and Dr. Famara. And Patrick, just to build on what you said before we launch into the Q&A here, um, Fresh Energy has a webinar that we are calling um, the IRA and you. Um, that pretty much talks about the consumer impacts of the Inflation Reduction Act. And we do have a recording of the webinar that I'll probably add to the email that everyone will get, but then also um, we're doing our best to fulfill requests for uh, webinar and occasional in-person versions of that event. So people can reach out to Fresh Energy if they wanna learn a little bit more about what that entails. But now I wanna dive into the Q&A. Is everyone ready? Um, I see, I've seen a couple of questions come in through the chat. Uh, and then I want to remind folks too to use the QA function at the bottom of the screen. Um, and our first question that I'm going to pose to the group here um, Mike asks, Michael asks, is there a plan through COP or G20 for rewarding countries for lowering their greenhouse gas emissions? And I'll start out with that. This is Jay. And I didn't hear any of that language being used um, at COP27. Now, I wasn't watching everything at COP27, of course. Um, so I don't know. But it is one of these new, these newer ideas that are starting to gain, gain traction. Because with more people coming to COPs, you have more ideas. And that is always good for how we are gonna solve this massive problem. So I didn't hear anyone speak of it in charm, but it doesn't mean it wasn't said. I think something related to that, that question and is that uh, I think, uh, Jay, you alluded to it, that the, the US and Japan, mm. and I think the G20 uh, reached an agreement to uh, help Indonesia mm. accelerate its transition away from, from coal. So that's a direct investment in getting Indonesia off of coal. Yeah, and why that was so important is Indonesia is the 10th biggest emitter of CO2. So does that matter? Yes, very much it does. So I'm really glad that John Kerry, working with his collaborators from Japan, made that happen. Thank you. And I have a question from Dustin in the chat. and. Dr. Damfa, I wonder if you want to maybe take this one first, or we can have Patrick or Jay do it. But um, so Dustin asks, regarding the loss and damage funding that was approved, it's basically like, what's next? When and where is the conversation going? Where are negotiations? When will details be finalized of implementation? Like, when are we expecting all of that to take place? Well, I'll start off on that. Um... The COP27 spent less than 24 hours talking about loss and damage, and they need to spend a lot more time. And they have a whole year laid out to have more of those conversations arbitrated by the UN um, and reaching into UAE, into the COP28, because no one knew that loss and damage would actually be passed. It didn't, it didn't list a number of the funding or the sources of the funds. So it's all very vague. And we all have to push all of the parties to work hard on doing this as quickly as possible. Did anyone else want to add on to that? Um, I, <clears throat> I think um, that's right on the point. Uh, I think the modalities of the funds uh, yet to be discussed. Uh, I think this will happen in the subsequent cost. Who, uh, cop, who, who pays, how much they pay, who receives those funds, and under what circumstances do they receive those funds? Because there, there has been a little bit of discussion about uh, if China should like 
China's role, China should pay into these funds because China is, as you know, the biggest polluter uh, annual, annually. Um, so I think what I've heard on the specifics in terms of who receives it now, the target will go to the poorest, the least developed and small island nations that are most vulnerable. But how much there has been a little bit of announcements here and there. I tweeted this out there uh, in, in terms of pledges we've had, but those are very small, but it's a good starting point, I would say. I want to, on the other question of uh, uh, incentives, I, I think the incentives, are, lack of incentives are the main problem here because every country is sovereign state and you know they could do whatever they want to do. But I think we have international mechanisms put in place that incentivizes parties and people in their block or in their groups to act. For example, the EU, they, they kind of have their own EU arrangements and incentives that you get from the EU agreement. So if you disagree with that block agreement, for instance, you might be disincentivized in a certain way, similar to the least developed country group. So I think these groups are created to allow that internal discussion for countries to be incentivized um, to act fast and act sooner. So, but it's, it's not a straightforward um, issue. Just there's like. another there's another commitment that was made by China at COP27. China said they will give some of the money to developing nations from loss and damages. So that was the first time I had ever heard that. And that was a big that was a big deal. Yeah. But we need much more than that, of course. Thank you. Questions, Joe? Yeah, yep. So there's one from from Amy and I I wonder if I wonder if you'll be able to answer this one this is interesting so did the question of considering military emissions arise at COP27 Amy is saying that military emissions are a large source of emissions um, that are unaccountable is that correct Jay can you say anything about this yes there was at least one session on military um, emissions maybe more so that was very much um, a relatively new discussion point. It's far too late to be talking about that because it's so big. Um, I did not get to go to that um, to that session, but I know that it happened and I know that it will have been recorded. So I'm gonna look for it and I'll let you know if I find it. And there was also a, a protest on the stage at the US uh, Center at the conclusion of, of a session where one of the protesters jumped up on the stage and, and announced the fact that military emissions are not included in, in national inventories, and they need to be, because as, as Jay pointed out, uh, they are uh, enormous. They are significant, and particularly in the United States, and they, they need to be part of the inventory because they are definitely contributing to the problem. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, so Judy is asking, what are the larger ramifications of loss mitigation funds on the bigger emitters? Well, it's my thought that um, the bigger emitters are also some of the richest countries in the world, and they should be giving most of the loss and damage money to that fund. So I think that will be a big part of the opening negotiations that happen over the next few months and need to happen well before COP28 starts. Because what we should have learned from COP27 is for 30 years, the most vulnerable countries had been trying to get loss and damage on the agenda of the UN. They got it on the agenda on day one of COP27 and they were successful. What we should learn from that is we need to push harder to really ramp up and make much quicker these discussions happen and get them resolved. And I think that the success of loss and damages at COP27 was also realized by the fact that uh, low income and medium income uh, countries, particularly in Africa and island nations, uh, really came together, really organized themselves to put that, that issue forward and, and really uh, made it undeniable. And, 
And unfortunately, I think uh, this year, 2022, has epitomized um, the implications of climate change because there have been numerous high profile climate change charged meteorological disasters around the planet. And uh, Pakistan is front and center. And in fact, I, uh, because you know, they had these enormous monsoons back in the summer that inundated a third of the country, displaced 30 million people. And I, uh, Pakistan had a pavilion at COP27 and I walked by and I took a picture because on the side of the pavilion, it says, what happens in Pakistan doesn't stay in Pakistan. And I think there's finally a realization at these COP meetings that um, the issues of climate change um, cannot be containerized. They cannot, as, as Professor Damfa said, they, uh, they transcend, transcend national boundaries. And so I think there's an increasing realization that the loss and damages that are taking place need to be uh, rectified. I went to three or four sessions on days three and four of COP27. And they were all about making the case. And the people making the case were people from the vulnerable nations. And they said, you know, loss and damage is not just related to the poorest countries. And they used the example of how many people on earth, most of them in Africa, who do not even have access to electricity. And they said, those people, many of whom I see here today, these people are suffering because they are not getting heard because they do not even have energy to use. And they said, so dealing with loss and damage funding is to the benefit of the most vulnerable nations, just it is also very helpful to the richest nations because we live as a large community in a big world and we need to start talking to more people and start helping more people. Thank you, Jay. I think, and, um, yes, please. This is, this is a small addition to that is, it has to be clear that this is not foreign aid, this is not charity, this is not development assistance. This is, this is something, it's a moral obligation that has to be uh, recognized. The other thing is a national security issue. It's when there is climate displacement from nearby countries, the United States is affected, Europe is affected. You know, I've studied climate migration. A lot of the climate-induced migration, um, the migrants ended up heading towards developed nations. So in one way or the other, you pay to fix it where they leave, or they will migrate to come to where you are you got to deal with those issues. So I think it has to be, you know, seen as a bound, boundaryless issue and has to be approached um, holistically. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Damfa. And I think, I hate to cut the conversation short, but I know there's a, a another meeting happening at one o'clock on our Zoom. So I think I, I need to wrap up the webinar for us. So thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you, especially to Jay, Dr. Damfa and Patrick for sharing these insights from your experience at COP27 this year. So what's next for the folks joining us today? Stay connected to Fresh Energy. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter. It's called Powering Progress. With it, you'll stay up to date on the latest and greatest energy and climate news here in Minnesota. Find out about these kinds of events and more. Uh, and then finally, I know Giving Tuesday was yesterday, but you know, I'm going to throw this out there anyway. You could become a donor to Fresh Energy. The reason we're giving this support, this presentation today, is because of the support of folks like you. And you can join us as we build an equitable, clean energy future here in Minnesota and beyond. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the audio recording of that webinar. As you probably noticed, we got cut off a little early there. Fresh Energy Zoom was in high demand that day, and we lost the last couple seconds of the recording. So big thanks to J. Drake Hamilton, Patrick Hamilton, and Dr. Dampa for their time on the webinar. And on behalf of myself, the guest speakers, and the whole Fresh Energy team, thank you for your interest and support in this topic and in Fresh Energy. If you'd like to stay up to date on our work, head to our website at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. 
And don't forget, if you make a donation of $30 or more to support Fresh Energy's policy work and presentations like this one, we'll send you a pair of wool clean energy socks. They look pretty cool. Just go to bit.ly slash fresh socks. And join us for more webinars. Our 2023 EV Outlook Virtual Happy Hour is on December 15th, and we will be giving everyone who participates the scoop on new electric vehicle models coming to market, exciting new rebates and tax incentives, and more. And with that, thank you for tuning in.